0: I've done two messages thus far from this chapter. I've entitled them Dead to Sin. We had a part one and a part two. And this morning, I would like to return to that subject one more time. I believe, Lord willing, we'll move on to chapter seven after this. But I want to to hit one more time. Now remember with me. Think where we are in the book of Romans. For those of you that haven't followed along all the way through the book of Romans, I'll bring you up to speed in just a little nutshell here. The Apostle Paul has been laying out the very foundations and the fundamentals of the Gospel. And he has said this, that by faith, without works, a man can be made right with God. A sinner. Somebody who does no good. Somebody who has nothing good about them. Nothing within themselves to offer themselves or make themselves presentable to God. Somebody who has done nothing but sin their entire lifetime can come to God and be accepted by faith in Jesus Christ. And He does it in such a way That by Christ's death, He suffered in the stead of sinners. He became sin for them. So that then in turn, this sinner can be made into the righteousness of God. The sins of the sinner put on the head of Christ. God's wrath poured on Christ. Christ's righteousness in turn imparted to the sinner And the sinner now robed in a righteousness. Not his own. It's the righteousness of Christ which He earned and sweat for. Labored after. It's that free. It's not by works. It's that complete. I can go from being vile, hell-bound, a reproach to God, and in a moment, totally clean. The record says guiltless. Perfect! Why? Because I'm accepted in the place of Christ, and Christ suffered in the place of me. It is that free. It is that glorious. That's what grace is all about. Grace is free. If it wasn't free, it wouldn't be grace. You see, that's too easy, and that's what some people say. And they say, well, if it is that easy, and it sounds way too easy, if it's that easy, then why not just go on in sin? And that's what chapter 6 is all about. Paul enters this chapter and he says, what then? Should we just go right on sinning because grace just keeps abounding? I mean, if it's really all that free, where's the incentive for me not to sin anymore? Might as well keep sinning. I mean, after all, I'm forgiven based on the righteousness of Christ, not on my own. So if I do a little bit more sin, Christ's righteousness isn't detracted by that. It's still sufficient. So, why not? I mean, if God's able to forgive all my sins, He's obviously able to forgive them all if there's a few more added on top. See, some people reason that way, and Paul expects that, and that's what chapter 6 is all about. Well, as he moves through, he's telling us, no, you can't. You won't. It's not possible. Because God not only does this legal thing where He gives you a right standing, He blasts into your life, and He turns your whole world upside down. He gives you a totally new heart, puts the Spirit within you. Basically, folks, you can't because you're united with Christ. And if you're united with Christ, you've died with Christ. And if you've died with Him, you will live to God with Him. And that's what the argument's been all the way up to this point. I want to pick up and read in chapter 6, verse 11, all the way through the end of the chapter. A lot of stuff here I realize it's deep. There's a lot of meat as far as doctrine and the Word goes. We're going to, again, pull some things out of this. I hope it will be clear. And we can make some sense out of it. Verse 11. Verse 11, by the way, of chapter 6, is the first commandment. It is the first imperative in the entire book of Romans. And by the way, in the first 11 and a half chapters of Romans, There are only five imperatives and they are found right in this section of chapter 6. Think about that. In the first eleven and a half, there's only five commands and they're all found right here. And we're going to read about all of them right now. Here's the first one. You also must consider. The first commandment given in the book of Romans is you need to consider that in fact, you yourselves as Christians are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. So, consider, that's the first commandment, let not sin reign, that's the second commandment, do not present your members, that's the third commandment, but present yourselves, that's the fourth commandment, to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the One whom you obey? Either. Notice, there's no third choice here. All men fall into this category of either one or the other. You either obey sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That's the Word of God, folks. These Romans became obedient by faith to the Word of God that they were taught. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. We're all slaves. You're just a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Sanctification is holiness. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, the first thing I want to do is just quickly review what I did two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, I used verses 12 and 13. Now, keep your Bibles open, put your eyes right there on verses 12 and 13. Two weeks ago, I used both these verses to draw out a picture. I don't believe that this is artificial. I mean, I wasn't making this up. I didn't get on some whim, you know, just to try to make it interesting, and I was kind of, I was being novel, but I was creating new things. This comes right out of scripture. Right out of the text. I portrayed sin as the dark Lord. A tyrant Lord. Why? Because Lord is what you call King. And a King is someone that reigns. And what is it that sin seeks to do? Look. Look right there in verse 12. It seeks to reign. Look at your Bibles. Sin seeks to usurp the authority of God and to reign and to set up its throne. This. Dark Lord, sin, it seeks to dwell in you. It seeks to dominate you. It seeks to reign. It seeks to enslave. Sin, as we read back in Genesis, crouches at the door and desires to have you. Sin wants the throne. And what throne does it want? Look Again, look at your, at your text. This dark Lord, sin seeks to set up its throne in a certain place. Where is that place? Folks, it's your mortal body. It's this. It's the flesh. Sin has a strategy for reigning right here. Right there. Where you are. And what is sin's strategy? There is a strategy here. Again, look with me. Its strategy for subduing and enslaving is not to get you to obey it directly. But to get you to obey its pawn. Do you see that there in the text? Who is it that it wants you to obey? It seeks to turn your passions, your desires against you. Sin seeks to take the desires of your mortal bodies and turn them against God and against you. That's exactly what it seeks to do. Desires which were designed by God for our good and His glory. Like the desire for... Food and drink and rest and comfort and sex and pleasure. The desire to be thrilled and amazed. Desire for friends. Desire for approval. All those desires in and of themselves are good. Sin comes in, seeks to capture those things, corrupt those things, and turn them against God. That's what it seeks to do. Sin seeks your obedience, this dark Lord, by having you obey these corrupted passions. That's how it seeks to work. And how does your obedience come forth? Well, sin reigns in your mortal body when you take the members of your body, your hands, your tongue, your mouth, your feet, your eyes, your sexual organs, vocal cords, ears, and you present them up as an offering to these desires. And as you do so, you're presenting yourself to sin. That's how this whole thing works. And how do these desires get you to obey them? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, Paul calls them deceitful desires. You know how they get you to obey them? They lie to you. They're deceitful. They tell you, fulfill me. And I'll give you fun. I'll fulfill you if you fulfill me. Indulge! And you'll be happy. This will be great. This will feel good. This will be exciting. You know, they promise this lasting joy. Lasting fulfillment. The only problem with that is they don't deliver What they deliver is cheap, it's momentary, it's fleeting, it's shallow. We're left discontent. And you know it. You that have drunk of sin, you know it. It promised you all sorts of things. And you drank deeply of it. And you know what? It only left you wanting more and more and more. It left you more enslaved, more miserable, more guilty, less peaceful. Annoying emptiness inside. Remember it! I remember it. It's deceitful. It doesn't give what it offers. This is how sin works. Paul says this exact... What I told you right there is not some fabrication of my mind. That is exactly what Paul says happens in our lives. In the life of a lost person. And in verse 12, Paul says, Christian... Don't let that happen. Don't let it. Don't let sin reign, which means don't let yourself obey your body's corrupt desires, which means don't let those desires deceive you into thinking that they must be obeyed in order for you to be happy and fulfilled. Don't do it. Don't let it happen. And then, right after Paul says don't let it happen, he immediately gives us a reason why we shouldn't let it happen. Now, notice verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you. Now, catch the general thrust of this. First, Paul says in verses 12 and 13, don't let sin have dominion over you. And then in verse 14, he gives the reason. Because sin will not have dominion over you. Do you see the construction here? First a command to resist sin's reign, then a promise that sin will not reign. What I want to do this morning is hit on three headings. First, I want to look at the promise. What does it mean? The promise right there in verse 14. What does that mean? Second, we'll consider the paradox. Why does it seem somewhat disagreeable to our minds to hear... Both of these things said together, don't let it sin, and it will not sin. I mean, isn't that kind of contradictory? And then, third and finally, I want to take a look at the process. What is the process by which God works in our lives to guarantee that this promise will, in fact, be fulfilled? So we have promise, paradox, and process, and we'll move quickly through these. First, the meaning. Promise. What does this mean? What does it mean when God tells us sin will have no dominion over you? The word dominion, I mean, it's close to dominate, right? In Thayer's Greek lexicon, it says this word means to be lord of, to rule over, have dominion over. Listen to this to exercise influence upon. To have power over. Now look, back up to verse 12. Notice, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do you see those two words, make you? Sin seeks to make you obey. It wants to control you. That's the idea behind domination or dominion. It wants to make you do what it wants you to do. If I can make you do anything I want you to do, I have dominion over you. That's what what it's all about. The meaning behind the promise in verse 14 is that as a Christian, sin no longer has the power to To make you obey its passions. And that's what Paul's been saying all along. Christian, you cannot continue in sin because you're dead to it. It does not have that ability any longer. Now watch. Verse 17. Look down at verse 17. It says that we were once, if you're a Christian, we were once slaves of sin. If you jump forward to verse 18, that says, now we have been set free from sin. What in the world does all that mean if it doesn't mean that we've been delivered from the dominion of sin? When a slave is freed from a slave master, he's free from the control and domination of that master. Sin will have no dominion over you. This isn't the only time we find this truth taught in our Bibles. Listen to this. Don't turn there. Stay right there in Romans. But just listen to this. 1 John 3.9 Hear this clearly. No one. Those two words right there mean there's no exception. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. No one, if you're born again, practices Sin. It doesn't say they never sin. It says they don't practice sin. A Christian can fall. A Christian in the midst of the battle can slip. But they don't practice sin. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now listen. When you walk out of here today, when you get up on Monday morning and you walk out into this world, when you look at yourself in the mirror, when you look at your coworker at work, your fellow student in the college, the person shopping next to you at HEB, this applies. If you find somebody practicing sin they're not born again. And if they don't practice sin, they're born of God. And the only way anybody in this world gets to a place where they don't practice sin is if the seed of God is in them. And the seed of God comes into those folks who are born again. This is a reality. As I go out into the world and I look at every man and every woman and every child, this is a spiritual reality. If they are living a life where they are drinking sin and it is regular, it is continuous, it is ongoing day by day, they live in it. Folks, it doesn't matter what they call themselves. They aren't saved. It doesn't matter if they go to church. It doesn't matter if they have a Bible on their shelf at home. The reality is this. Lay it down. If you've been born of God, you cannot continue on a path where sin dominates you. It's the same truth that Paul's saying over there in Romans chapter 6. It can't happen. It can't. You cannot practice sin. And if you do practice sin, it doesn't matter if it's somebody you see in the church. It doesn't matter if it's you that you see and you're in the church. If you practice sin, 1 John 3 Verse 8 tells us why. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Period. It doesn't have to be fornication, adultery, homosexuality, prostitution. We're talking a person who practices jealousy, Envy, covetousness, idolatry, materialism, greed, lust. If that's the practice of your life, the practice, we know as a Christian there's a battle. But if that's the practice, it's not there. Christian, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. He cannot keep sinning; sin will have no dominion over him. These are not commands; these are promises. These are facts. So, brethren, believe them. Take them into the battle with you, brethren. Don't look at them and and find them as, as something where you know you you begin to take these things and fill yourself with doubt and and look all over the place and and try to micro-examine everybody else. That's not what I'm giving these to you for. I'm giving these to you so that you can say, look, I'm a Christian. There's been radical change in my life. I know I have a love for Christ. To you, I'm saying, take these. They say you won't practice sin. They say it won't have dominion over you. So when that sin hits you square between the eyes, You have the power to resist it. Take these promises and do battle. Go forth conquering and to conquer with your Lord Jesus Christ. And conquer sin. That's the point. Not so that we can micro-examine everybody, but so that you can conquer sin in your life. Okay, that's the promise. Sin will have no dominion. God promises every one of His blood-bought children that's a reality. Second thing, the paradox. Let's think about the paradox here, or at least what might seem to be one. The construction here in verses twelve through fourteen runs like this don't let sin master you, because sin is not going to master you. Now let me ask you, doesn't it have a strange ring to it? A little bit? That seems strange to anybody that we don't talk that way. But that's how God talks. Don't because it won't. It almost seems redundant and unnecessary to say both. If God is promising, and and He is, if God is promising that sin won't have dominion, then why does He have to tell us not to let it have dominion? Right? Right? If He says it won't, then why tell us not to let it? And He certainly is saying that it won't have dominion. But the thing about it is, listen, if God says it won't have dominion, and it won't, and He's determined not to let it, that's obvious. He's committing Himself to use His power to make certain this promise does not fail. He's saying with certainty it's going to come to pass. One thing, folks, that's absolutely certain about this is He doesn't need my help to pull this off. I mean, in the sense of my power, it's not like God says, oh, I've done all I can and now I leave it up to you to fulfill this thing and it might or might not happen. If God says it's not want to have dominion over you. It's because He's exercising His full power to make sure it doesn't come to pass. And if He is, He certainly doesn't need my power on top of it in order to make it happen. That's a certainty. God is not dependent on me. He's almighty. He has all power, unlimited strength. If He says it won't have dominion over me, believe it, brethren, it won't have dominion over me. He's not sitting back and waiting to see what I'll do. He is actively involved in this. He's flexing His mighty arm to subdue that sin in my life. And this is just where to some it might seem like there's a problem arises. Because look what we're faced with. We're faced with this scenario where I'm being commanded to make a choice. Think about it. When when Paul says, let not sin reign, We're obviously confronted by a choice, are we not? I could let it rain, or I could resist it and not let it rain, right? But if God's going to step in and say, it won't rain, then why even tell me that? Because it's like God has taken my choice right out of the equation. He's already said, I already know what your choice is going to be. So why even tell me? See, that creates problems in a lot of people's thinking. We're faced with this scenario. You know, folks, God knows that every true Christian is going to choose to resist sin. You know how He knows it? If He's ultimately responsible for making this prophet promise happen, the only way he can carry through with it, if he's not dependent on me at all, is to make certain that I choose the right thing. And you see, that's the the place where people have problems. Because here's where man is. Man is very man minded, man centered, humanistic in his thinking. He sees man as Chief in his own thing. Natural man is like that. He sees himself as number one and God's subordinate to him. And so basically, the way man views life is if he's called into a decision-making process, man really believes that ultimately at that point of decision, he has the ability to choose which way he's going to go. And if God steps into the picture right after telling us choose the right way, and then says you will choose the right way, we immediately are confronted with the fact, you know what? god got the ability to override my choosing box that's in here. He can regulate that thing. He can make this happen. If God says, as a matter of fact, sin isn't going to have dominion over you, He knows for a fact every true Christian is going to resist The reign of sin in their life. And He knows it's going to happen because He's going to exert His power to make it happen. And if He does that, I'm telling you folks, He's moving upon your decision maker to make the right decision. Does God have the ability to override people's own personal will? He does it all the time! He causes us to will and to do of His good pleasure. Folks, if it wasn't for that, I'd still be out there. And so would you. We don't look at this thing as a huge problem. We look at this as great grace. Yes, thank You, Lord, that You came and overhold my decision-making and my choosing. I'm glad He usurped my will. I'm glad He did. Because if He wouldn't have... I love sin. I love to drink it. I did not. You know what Romans 3 says? None seeks after God. None. All have gone astray, folks. All of them. There's none good. Not a single one. And we have no desire for God. And God busted into my life and caused me to do the right thing. This is meant to encourage. Not to baffle. Not to confuse. This is meant to encourage the child of God that when you're confronted by sin, I can fight this thing. I can win here because God is behind me with all of His power and He's going to make sure it happens. Yes, I may stumble. Yes, I may slip. But I'm going to conquer this thing. And though I may have slipped yesterday or last month or last year, it's behind me. If God is in me, I'm going forward and He guarantees victory. Folks, this is, in fact, the conventional approach behind God's instruction to his people. You hear the Philippians two: twelve, I already said it, in thirteen, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean you work to be saved. it means when you are saved, there is work to do, and that salvation is worked through. There are good works, and if you have not those good works, you're deceived. Scripture tells us that. And so Paul says to these Philippians. You need to be working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work His good pleasure. Listen to what he's saying. Work because God works in you to work. That's the truth of the Scripture. God is sovereign in my sanctification. God is sovereign in my victory over sin. When Paul says you are dead to sin as a Christian, it's because God comes in with such might into the life of the Christian to make it a reality. He will use His power to make this a matter of fact. It's going to happen. It's going to come to pass. Now, I mean, folks, when we're confronted by a command like this, we're confronted in such a way that anybody's confronted when they're confronted with a command. When I'm commanded, I either have the choice to obey it, I must choose that, or not to obey it, right? But when God comes right behind a command to me, and on top of that, He throws a promise. He throws assurance that the very thing He commanded me is certain to go the way He commanded me to do it. Folks, <laughs> the reality is, He's going to make sure. Because He's going to work on my reasoning, my choosing, you see, folks, that thought is frightening for many people because it blasts our self centered notions about choosing and free will. Man does not like to think it's this way, but that's what we're being taught here. And, folks, I want to tell you this this notion today, you've heard it, many of you, the notion of this carnal Christianity. Oh, he's a Christian, but you know, he fell in with the wrong crowd and he's been backslidden these six, seven years. Folks, will have no dominion over the man, the woman, or the child who is united with Christ. What people describe when they describe the perpetual backslidden person is not a backslidden Christian. Not a carnal child of God. but they're describing is a child of the devil. Here's what Scripture says. That's the fact. In Micah seven nineteen, He will subdue our iniquities. He will subdue them. Ezekiel thirty six twenty seven, under the new covenant, we're told, "I will cause you to walk in My statutes and be careful to obey." I will. God says, "I'm pitting My will in this whole equation in such a way that you will." You see that. You will obey because I will cause you to will to obey. But that, you know what? Does that override my free will, my choosing? You better believe it does. God is sovereign. But again, I say to you folks, glory be to God that it's so. That is my hope. If you're entrenched in sin right now, that's why it's so important to turn to Him. Call to Him. Because once He flexes His arm and bears forth His might in your life, sin is not going to have dominion. You say, I just can't get out from under it. I want to. I wish I could. I wish I knew where to look. Go to Christ. He is the mighty Savior. He will save His people from their sin. Not just from the guilt of it. He saves them from it. From its dominion. From its power. Yes, from its penalty. Yes, from its guilt. But also from its very mastery in your life. It seeks to make you. And when Christ is called upon, He comes in and He breaks it. That's glorious. And now, third, the process. And I want to touch on this as we finish up. brings up this question. How does the Lord do all this? How does He make certain that sin has no dominion in my life? What's the process? Well, I mean, as I pondered this, Two words kept jumping out at me from verse 19. Just glance there, verse 19. Go past the first sentence and follow with me, beginning at the word "for." You see it? For just as. See it? Y'all see where I am? Romans 6:19. Go past the first sentence in 6:19. And you will find the words for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity. This is how you were when you were lost into lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. That's the picture of a lost person. Just as you once presented yourself in that manner, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Do you see the two words just as those, those jumped out at me. Those are words that demand comparison. Just as that, so this. What is being compared? It's the life we once lived, where we presented our members as slaves to sin. But now, just as I once did that, so now I'm to present my members to righteousness. The question is this: How did I present my members to sin? How did I do it? How did I do it? Well, remember. Remember how I did it. Because just as I did that, now I'm to do the other. Remember how it was. Sin came in. The dark Lord. It takes my desires. Corrupts them. Captures them. Takes them to Himself. And then, seeks to draw Me to obey them. What Paul calls deceitful desires. They seek to deceive Me. And you know what? Just as sin sought to reign, so now, God breaks in and he will reign. It's rightly his throne, remember. It was never meant to be a seat of sin. It's rightfully his. He is our creator. He comes in and he seeks to reign, and what God seeks to do, he will do. Now, how did sin seek to reign? By leading us to obey corrupt desires. How does God seek? Just as sin did, so God does. God comes in. Sin took our desires. Sexual appetite. Food. Drink. All the, all these sin corrupted them. God comes in. And He comes in with two new desires. And He sets them up as His regents. And He gives them power and sway over all the other desires. Just as we obeyed those corrupt desires, now, just as we did that, God seeks to reign and have our obedience by having us obey these new desires. Those desires were corrupt and they were deceitful. And they told us lies. They never gave what they promised. These new desires, they're superior because they have superior promises. Because most, for one thing, their promises are true. Do you know what these two desires are? The first one, when you look at the Beatitudes, you find right there in Matthew 5 a Beatitude that says, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's an appetite, hunger, thirst, and it's given. You know, you know the term blessed? Blessed. If you look at the original construction there, Christ is implying that they and they only are the blessed ones. You see what the Beatitudes are early on in Matthew chapter 5. They are the characteristics of those who have been born again. And one of the characteristics is that they will hunger and thirst after righteousness. God comes mightily. He storms the sinner's life. He comes in and He sets up a hunger for righteousness. And it's twin, He sets up a passion for God Himself. You know where you see that one all over the place is in the Psalms. You see the psalmist, he's yearning. Oh, as the deer pants after the water books, he's saying, Saul, I long after you, God... When shall I come and appear before God? When am I going to find You? He says, it's like a dry and thirsty land. I long after You, Lord. You see this repeatedly. And what you find, folks, is that throughout the Scriptures there are appeals made to those who are thirsty. Come! Jesus Christ Himself rose up. Did He not? And He said, if you're thirsty, come! You know what? God knows That if you thirst, you will come. This is true Christianity. You know what God has done in my life? He hasn't unseated in this life those other passions. But He's filled the life with dominating superior desires with superior promises. So you know what? Sexual sin is still over there. And it still seeks to have me obey it. And it says you know what, this would feel good if you did this. But the superior desires rise up and they control those lesser ones. And they say, but if you do that, you will hinder the relationship with the Christ who you love to be with. I'm telling you folks, this is where the heart of fighting sin rests. Right here. God is sovereign in it. He sets up these two desires. But in all of God's works, He works through your working. Work because it's God who works in you. And if you end up not working, you show indication that God isn't working in you. Here's the whole point of the matter God controls you the same way, just as sin did, through your desires. And God will come in and change your desires. I'll guarantee you this, folks. You will not run off and sleep with a prostitute when the desire for Christ is burning in your heart. You won't do it. When you are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, you're not going to go out and get stupid drunk. I guarantee it, folks. The problem in your life is if sin is something that you are falling to, you are not successfully battling, it's because these two desires are not trumping everything else in your life. You know what? Scripture says, make no provision for the flesh. Don't make provision for those corrupted desires. And the inverse is a reality as well. Make provision for these two new... I realize, folks that you might not find these two specifically mentioned right there in Romans 6. But I'm telling you, just as you did the one, just that way, now you do the other. And the way sin controlled was through desire. The way God controls is through desire. This is true Christianity. You will not succeed in the Christian life if all you do is try to work through this thing because it's your duty. You will go through this thing successfully if ultimately you have a desire for Christ and for His righteousness that surpasses every other desire. That's the only way you'll do it. The Christian life is a life of competing desires. Nurture those two new desires. Nurture that hunger for righteousness. Nurture. You know what I mean by this. You can nurture and make provision For the flesh, you know how to do it. Folks, if I want to nurture my relationship with my wife, do you think going to the mall and sitting there and gazing at a bunch of other women is a way to do it? It isn't. And I'll guarantee you this if you have fallen into sin recently or you are having a sin problem that you are succumbing to, it is because these desires are not trumping in your life. It's because you are not taking the time to spend with Christ. You're off looking at a bunch of other women and not devoting yourself to Him. You know what? The person that is pressing forward and giving themselves to drawing close to Christ. They feel a yearning for Him in their life. They're not the person that's running off and falling into all sorts of sin. They're not. They're not. Cultivate those. If you want to let not sin reign in your life, then you need to be cultivating the very desires that will take you away from obeying those corrupt desires. It's true, folks. You will do what your will desires to do. Christianity cannot come down to, oh, I'm afraid of hell, so I better do this right thing, go to church once in a while and read my Bible infrequently. That's not what it's about. It's about, you know what? When a man is first married, I can't, you know, Lloyd, the first week you were married, you're on your honeymoon. I don't think the night he was on his honeymoon that there was some great temptation for him to fall into into the sin of adultery. I don't think it was there. Why? He was infatuated with his wife. He wanted to be with her. He loved her. The same thing is true. You will not. I'll guarantee. If you're falling into sin, your Hunger and thirst for Christ and His righteousness has waned. And if it has, it's because you are not doing what you need to do to cultivate that. Christian, this is where it's at. This is where the fight... You are dead to sin. The way you're dead to it is by superior desires. You see, when you were a slave... To sin, it says you were dead to righteousness. It had no appeal. There was nothing in it that you desired. That's why you were dead. Folks, when when Romans 6 talks about slavery, it's not talking about wrapping you up with chains and making you do something you don't want to do. It's just the opposite of that. It's slavery is exerted on you simply by giving you what you do want to do. You see, the bondage there is that my will never wanted to do the right thing because the desires were corrupt. But God has come in now and done this thing in our life. And just the way You did that, so now do this. The way You gave and fostered those things before, so now. I mean, I'll ask you this, Christian: Do you think you foster and cultivate a hunger for Christ and for righteousness by a season of prayer and fasting? By a season of renewed vigor in diving into the Word, meditating on it? by specifically taking an hour or two hours out of a day and setting them aside and not letting anything else encroach upon it. There are things I can do to stir my physical appetites. In the same way, there are things I can do to stir my physical appetites. I mean, you know, think, think with me. If you want to get consumed... About a certain new car, you've got the money to buy it, or you don't. And you're going to buy it on credit. You know, go out, look at them, test drive them, study all the facts about them on the internet. If you're interested in a new computer. You know, look at all the specs out there. Study it, examine it. Fill your life with it. You get to where you're thinking about it all the time. I mean, you you want to become you want to become just absolutely totally consumed with the Spurs. Watch everything that happens, every report on them, study all the statistics, do everything imaginable. I mean, that's how, folks, it works just the same way when it comes to our resisting sin. If I want to have these two desires trump everything else in my life, I've got to feed them. I've got to give and give and give to them. It takes time to do this. These things are a relationship. You know, when I get to the place where I so covet that relationship with Christ that I want nothing else to come in between it. I am so. I mean, I I want to find Him. I'm just reaching for Him. I'm not going to let anything else get in the way. I'm not going to be tempted to fall into sin if the temptation comes. It's like folks throwing a spark on wet grass. It's not going anywhere. This is the reality. This is the process God uses. I guarantee every person in this room, you will make it to heaven by superior desires with superior promises. And you know what? The promises of those corrupt desires, they promised everything and they didn't deliver. The thing about these... They make promises, and they promise everything. And folks, they give you everything. Father, may we live this. May you cause us to live this. For Christ's sake, amen. You're dismissed.